Welcome to the conversation. Hi. I'm an ER doctor, which means that if I'm given 12 minutes to talk to people, that's probably already 10 minutes too long. And uh, I was thinking, Father Boyle, in the spirit of uh, self-deprecating or self-defecating humor, I'd start by telling you about the time when I did a rectal exam and forgot to wear gloves, <laughs> but maybe not. It wasn't long ago that I found myself in the ER, and uh, it was a Friday night, and about 10 o'clock at night, I uh, went into a room, saw a three-year-old Indian boy who presented with four hours of vomiting. He was there with uh, his parents and seven-year-old sister. They were super nice, and I, you know, we were very busy, and I usually would try an oral trial and hydration that way, but um, I just decided I'd put an IV and give him some IV fluids and uh, got the results back. Everything looked good as I expected and called it a virus and sent him home. Forgot all about him until two days later. I came back to the ER on a Sunday morning, and about noon, I went into a room and found this family waiting for me again. And usually ER doctors hate uh, bounce backs, is what we call patients who come back. But in this case, I didn't mind because they were super nice. And I asked why they were back, and the father explained that the boy had done better the first 24 hours, and uh, that morning had woke up and was having vomiting again. But they were also concerned that he seemed sleepier than usual. I was surprised by that, but examined the child and agreed. And I thought he um, did look, in fact, very um, sleepy and a bit off in his mental status. So I decided to do a head CT. And a few minutes later, I pulled up the head CT and found what I was dreading, a grapefruit-sized tumor in the back of the brain. You know, I um, love a lot of things about my job, and there are just very few things that I find extremely challenging. This is one of them. And I've not gotten used to talking to families about uh, their kids having cancer after 15 years of practice. And so I walked with Dredd into a private room with the parents and told them the news. And I could tell that they understood it intellectually, but it just hadn't connected yet. And so I um, left the room and figured I'd need round two and maybe round three. And a few minutes later, I went back to the room. They were back with their kids. Um, and I uh, kind of stood in silence, because you just don't know what to say. And that was one of those moments. And at some point, I suggested that they bring the grandparents, because we were going to have to transfer the kid to the higher level of care hospital. And I thought somebody would need to take care of the seven-year-old sister. I, it's easier being pragmatic in those situations. And so uh, the dad looked at me and said, well, we can't. They're all in India. Uh, I would, must have looked puzzled because he uh, went on to explain that only eight months earlier he had, uh, taken, he had decided to move his family from India to Naperville, Illinois, because he wanted to give his family a better life. And, you know, some things in life you just don't expect. It just felt like I was kicked in the gut. I, um, I, it just hit me at a very deep level. You see, I myself am an immigrant. We moved from Beirut, Lebanon to Green Bay, Wisconsin when I was 15 years old. And the reason we moved really was that my father wanted to give us a better life. And I thought about that, and it just felt so close to home. I thought, how would we have responded if one of us had had a really de deadly brain tumor uh, a year into our move? I must have teared up, which I try not to do in the ER too much. I'd... And I think it was then that the father understood the gravity of the situation. He leaned forward and, and just with some breathless despair asked me a question. He said, Doctor, is there any hope? And uh, I got to confess, I should have expected the question, but I, I really didn't. I thought, what can I say to him? To give him hope would be lying, and, and, and to take away any hope would be cruel. But more seriously was my own questions about hope at that point of my life. See, I've been following Jesus for over 30 years. And I thought about all of the things that I'd hoped for in my life. I 
thought about all of the dreams that had uh, been broken and longings unfulfilled, and I thought, I had hoped for so much at one point. You know, there were two disciples once who took a seven-mile walk from Emmaus, or from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They had followed Jesus for three years, and they understood the predicament that I was in because they too had hoped for some things. They had hoped that Jesus would fix their problems. They had hoped that Jesus would uh, set the captives free and that he would eradicate injustice and, and get rid of the evil government and free them. But instead, they had witnessed Jesus crucified, unjustly abused, and then put in a grave. And, and three days later, what was worse was that they were told that he wasn't even in the grave anymore. And so they took that seven-mile walk, and they were despondent and in despair. And it was then that a stranger came up to them and said, what's wrong? They said, are you the only one around here who doesn't know the facts? He said, tell me. Well, what they didn't know was that that was Jesus resurrected from the dead. He hadn't revealed himself to them yet. And so they went through the whole story, and they got to that place where uh, they said the three most dreaded words that any follower of Jesus has ever felt. We had hoped. They had hoped that he would fix their problems. You know, what Jesus does is astounding. See, if I were Jesus, I'd be like, guys, you don't need to worry. I'm here. Look at the marks in my hand, and I'd fix their problem. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he looks at him and says, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, I don't know about you, but I, I want glory without suffering. I want joy without pain. I want healing without wounds. But I wonder if Jesus has more in mind for us. You know, it got me thinking about another story about Jesus, my favorite story, really. It's in the Gospel of John, and it's an encounter between Jesus and a nameless woman. And it continues to astound me how much Jesus can do with nameless people. In this case, we'll call her the Samaritan woman because she's from Samaria. I know it's genius. But this woman was not an ordinary woman. She, how shall I say this politely, she was a slut. And she had been married five times and presently was living with a guy. And at that time, it was not cool to live with a guy. And so the people in the town kind of treated her badly, so much so that everybody would go in the morning to get water at the well, except for this woman. She would wait till noon, the hottest time of the day. And I'm from that area. I can tell you it's hot at noon, and people try to avoid being outside. But this woman would go to the well and get her water then. Well, on that particular day, she made it out to the well, and uh, I'm sure that she wasn't paying much attention and was caught up in her own thoughts, because I've been that woman that wants to avoid being around people. Had she seen Jesus waiting for her at the well, I think she would have turned around or waited till he was gone. But she came up all the way to the tip of the well, and there was Jesus. You know, there are so many astounding things about the conversation that takes place between them. That Jesus was a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman is shocking. That they had a theological discussion instead of just talking about the weather. That the content of their discussion continues to feel above my pay grade. All of these things move me, but really what is the most shocking of the whole thing is what happens at the end. What moves that woman you see, if I were her and I had problems, I'd want Jesus to fix them. And, and I'd have given him some options. Like one option would be he could have brought that live-in boyfriend who was causing her all the trouble and married them. He was a rabbi. 
That could have fixed it. Or, or he could have held a town hall meeting and, 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 and rebuked the villagers, maybe done one of those things where he sits on the ground and, and scribbles some things in the sand, you know, and maybe that could have fixed the problem and they would have all like felt really bad. Or maybe I would have chosen a one-way ticket to Tahiti and gotten out of town, all those judgmental freaks. But he doesn't do that. And we get a glimpse of how he fixed the problem by her response when the disciples finally show up with Jimmy John's. The woman drops her jug, runs back to the villagers, those very people that she had tried to avoid, the ones who hated her. And she says to them this, she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? You know, the woman's response showed that she understood where hope came from, and she understood much more than, than a Jesus who just fixes our problem. In that statement, she shows that she finally found someone who knew her so well and still loved her so much. You see, we expect hope to be temporary solutions to passing problems, but it's only a matter of time before we have new problems. But what Jesus has in mind for us is so much deeper See, hope can be found as love in unexpected places and acceptance where it's undeserved and belonging where you feel like you're an outsider looking in. Hope is Jesus at the well in the heat of the day when no one else wants you around. And sometimes it's just a feeling before you really know what it is. The disciples on the road to Emmaus explained it this way. When Jesus finally revealed himself to them, they said, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road? Later, they found the other disciples and they said, uh, they said, we knew him by the breaking of the bread. And isn't it true that it is in the very midst of our brokenness that hope is found? And so I stood in the room as the father waited for my answer. And I didn't have all of the details, but I knew one thing. As he leaned forward and his question echoed in my soul, is there any hope? I said, sir, there's always hope with Jesus. There's always hope with Jesus. Thank you.